Section 4 of Handbook of Nature Study. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Ingle. Handbook of Nature Study by Anna Botsford Comstock. Part 1 The Teaching of Nature Study. The Correlation of Nature Study with Language Work 2. Gardening and Nature Study The Correlation of Nature Study with Language Work Nature study should be so much a part of the child's thought and interest that it will naturally form a thought core for other subjects quite unconsciously on his part. In fact, there is one safe rule for correlation in this case. It is legitimate and excellent training as long as the pupil does not discover that he is correlating. But there is something in human nature which revolts against doing one thing to accomplish quite another. A boy once said to me, I'd rather never go on a field excursion than have to write it up for English, a sentiment I sympathize with keenly. Ulterior motive is sickening to the honest spirit. But if that same boy had been a member of a field class, and had enjoyed all the new experiences, and had witnessed the interesting things discovered on this excursion, and if later his teacher had asked him to write for her an account of some part of it, because she wished to know what he had discovered, the chances are that he would have written his story joyfully, and with a certain pride that would have counted much for achievement in word expression. When Mr. John Spencer, known to so many children in New York State as Uncle John, was conducting the Junior Naturalist Clubs, the teachers allowed letters to him to count for language exercises, and the eagerness with which these letters were written should have given the teachers the key to the proper method of teaching English. Mr. Spencer requested the teachers not to correct the letters, because he wished the children to be thinking about the subject matter rather than the form of expression. But so anxious were many of the pupils to make their letters perfect, that they earnestly requested their teachers to help them write correctly, which was an ideal condition for teaching them English. Writing letters to Uncle John was such a joy to the pupils that it was used as a privilege and a reward of merit in many schools. One rural teacher reduced the percentage of tardiness to a minimum by giving the first period in the morning to the work in English, which consisted of letters to Uncle John. Why do pupils dislike writing English exercises? Simply because they are not interested in the subject they are asked to write about, and they know that the teacher is not interested in the information contained in the essay. But, when they are interested in the subject and write about it to a person who is interested, the conditions are entirely changed. If the teacher, overwhelmed as she is by work and perplexities, could only keep in mind that the purpose of a language is, after all, merely to convey ideas, some of her perplexities would fade away. A conveyance, naturally, should be fitted for the load it is to carry, and if the pupil acquires the load first, he is very likely to construct a conveyance that will be adequate. How often the conveyance is made perfect through much effort and polished through agony of spirit and the load entirely forgotten! Nature study lessons give much excellent subject matter for stories and essays, but these essays should never be criticized or defaced with the blue pencil. They should be read with interest by the teacher, the mistakes made in them, 
so transformed as to be unrecognizable, may be used for drill exercises in grammatical construction. After all, grammar and spelling are only gained by practice, and there is no royal road leading to their acquirement. THE CORRELATION OF NATURE STUDY AND DRAWING The correlation of nature study and drawing is so natural and inevitable that it needs never be revealed to the pupil. When the child is interested in studying any object, he enjoys illustrating his observations with drawings. The happy absorption of children thus engaged is a delight to witness. At its best, drawing is a perfectly natural method of self-expression. The savage and the young child, both untutored, seek to express themselves and their experiences by this means. It is only when the object to be drawn is foreign to the interests of the child that drawing is a task. Nature's study offers the best means for bridging the gap that lies between the kindergarten child, who makes drawings because he loves to and is impelled to from within, and the pupil in the grades who is obliged to draw what the teacher places before him. From making crude and often meaningless pencil strokes, which is the entertainment of the young child, the outlining of a leaf or some other simple and interesting natural object is a normal step full of interest for the child, because it is still self-expression. Miss Mary E. Hill gives every year in the Goodyear School of Syracuse an exhibition of the drawings made by the children in the nature study classes, and these are universally so excellent that most people regard them as an exhibition from the art department, and yet many of these pupils have never had lessons in drawing. They have learned to draw because they like to make pictures of the living objects which they have studied. One year there were many pictures of toads in various stages in this exhibit, and although their anatomy was sometimes awry in the pictures, yet there was a certain vivid expression of life in their representation. One felt that the toads could jump, Miss Hill allows the pupils to choose their own medium, pencil, crayon, or watercolor, and says that they seem to feel which is best. For instance, when drawing the outline of trees in winter, they choose pencil, but when representing the trillium or iris, they prefer watercolor, while for bittersweet and crocuses, they choose the colored crayons. It is through this method of drawing that which interests him that the child retains and keeps as his own what should be an inalienable right, a graphic method of expressing his own impressions. Too much have we emphasized drawing as an art. It may be an art if the one who draws is an artist, but if he is not an artist he still has a right to draw if it pleases him to do so. We might as well declare that a child should not speak unless he put his words into poetry as to declare that he should not draw because his drawings are not artistic. THE CORRELATION OF NATURE STUDY WITH GEOGRAPHY Life depends upon its environment. Geographical conditions and limitations have shaped the mold into which plastic life has been poured and by which its form has been modified. It may be easy for the untrained mind to see how the deserts and oceans affect life. Cattle may not roam in the former, because there is nothing there for them to eat, nor may they occupy the latter, because they are not fitted for breathing air in the water. And yet the camel can endure thirst and live on the scant food of the desert, and the whale is a mammal fitted to live in the sea. The question is, 
how are we to impress the child with the have-to which lies behind all these geographical facts if animals live in the desert they have to subsist on scant and peculiar food which grows there they have to get along with little water they have to endure heat and sandstorms they have to have eyes that will not become blinded by the vivid reflection of the sunlight on the sand they have to be of sand color so that they may escape the eyes of their enemies or creep upon their prey unperceived all these have-tos are not mere chance but they have existed so long that the animal by constantly coming in contact with them has attained its present form and habits there are just as many have-tos in the stream or the pond back of the schoolhouse on the dry hillside behind it or in the woods beyond the creek as there are in desert or ocean and when the child gets an inkling of this fact he has made a great step into the realm of geography when he realizes why water lilies can grow only in still water that is not too deep and which has a silt bottom and why the cattails grow in swamps where there is not too much water and why the mullein grows in the dry pasture and why the hepatica thrives in the rich damp woods and why daisies grow in the meadows he will understand that this partnership of nature and geography illustrates the laws which govern life many phases of physical geography belong to the realm of nature study the brook its course its work or erosion and sedimentation the rocks of many kinds the soil the climate the weather are all legitimate subjects for nature study lessons the correlation of nature study with history there are many points where nature study impinges upon history in a way that may prove the basis for an inspiring lesson many of our weeds cultivated plants and domestic animals have been introduced from europe and are a part of our colonial history while there are many of the most commonly seen creatures which have played their part in the history of ancient times for instance the bees which gave to man the only means available to him for sweetening his food until the seventeenth century were closely allied to the home life of ancient peoples the buffalo which ranged our western plains had much to do with the life of the red man the study of the grasshopper brings to the child's attention stories of the locusts invasion mentioned in the bible and the stars which witness our creation and of which job sang and the ancients wrote shine over our heads every night but the trees through the lengthy span of their lives cover more history individually than do other organisms in glancing across the wood-covered hills of new york one often sees there far above the other trees the gaunt crowns of the old white pines such trees belong to the forest primeval and may have attained the age of two centuries they stand there looking out over the world relics of another age when america belonged to the red man and the bear and the panther played or fought beneath them the cedars live longer than do the pines and the great scarlet oak may have attained the age of four centuries before it yields to fate perhaps in no other way may the attention of the pupils be turned so naturally to past events as through the thought that the life of such a tree has spanned so much of human history the life history of one of these ancient trees should be made the center of local history 
let the pupils find when the town was settled by the whites, and where they came from, and how large the tree was then. What Indian tribes roamed the woods before that, and what animals were common in the forests when this tree was a sapling? Thus may be brought out the chief events in the history of the county and township, when they were established, and for whom, or what, they were named, and a comparison of the present industries may be made with those of a hundred years ago. THE CORRELATION OF NATURE STUDY WITH ARITHMETIC the arithmetical problems presented by nature study are many. Some of them are simple, and some of them are complicated, and all of them are illuminating. Seed distribution especially lends itself to computation. A milkweed pod contains 140 seeds. There are five such pods on one plant. Each milkweed plant requires at least one square foot of ground to grow on. How much ground would be required to grow all of the seeds from this one plant? Or count the seeds in one dandelion head, multiply by the number of flower heads on the plant, and estimate how many plants can grow on a square foot. Then ask a boy how long it would take for one dandelion plant to cover his father's farm with its progeny, or count the blossoms on one branch of an apple tree. Later count the ripened fruit. What percentage of blossoms matured into fruit? Measuring trees, their height and thickness, and computing the lumber they will make, combines arithmetic and geometry, and so on ad infinitum. As a matter of fact, the teacher will find in almost every nature lesson an arithmetic lesson, and when arithmetic is used in this work, it should be vital and inherent and not tacked on. The pupils should be really interested in the answers to their problems, and as with all correlation, the success of it depends upon the genius of the teacher. Gardening and Nature Study Erroneously, some people maintain that gardening is nature study. This is not so necessarily, nor ordinarily. Gardening may be a basis for nature study, but it is rarely made so to any great extent. Even the work in children's gardens is so conducted that the pupils know little or nothing of the flowers or vegetables which they grow, except their names, their uses to man, and how to cultivate them. They are taught how to prepare the soil, but the reason for this from the plant's standpoint is never revealed, and if the child becomes acquainted with the plants in his garden, he makes the discovery by himself. All this is nothing against gardening. It is a wholesome and valuable experience for a child to learn how to make a garden, even if he remains ignorant of the interesting facts concerning the plants which he there cultivates. But if the teachers are so inclined, they may find in the garden and its products the most interesting material for the best of nature lessons. Every plant the child grows is an individual with its own peculiarities, as well as those of its species in manner of growth. Its roots, stems, and leaves are of certain form and structure, and often the special uses to the plant of its own kind of leaves, stems, and roots are obvious. Each plant has its own form of flower, and even its own tricks for securing pollination, and its own manner of developing and scattering its seeds. Every weed of the garden has developed some special method of winning and holding its place among the cultivated plants, 
and in no other way may the child so fully and naturally come into a comprehension of that term the survival of the fittest as by studying the ways of the fit as exemplified in the triumphant weeds of his garden every earthworm working below the soil is doing something for the garden every bee that visits the flowers there is on an errand for the garden as well as for herself every insect feeding on leaf or root is doing something to the garden every bird that nests nearby or that ever visits it is doing something which affects the life and the growth of the garden what all of these uninvited guests are doing is one field of garden nature study aside from all this study of individual life in the garden which even the youngest child may take part in there are the more advanced lessons on the soil what kind of soil is it from what sort of rock was it formed what renders it mellow and fit for the growing of plants moreover what do the plants get from it how do they get it what do they do with what they get this leads to the subject of plant physiology the elements of which may be taught simply by experiments carried on by the children themselves experiments which should demonstrate the sap currents in the plant the use of water to carry food and in making the plant rigid the use of sunshine in making the plant food in the leaf laboratories the nourishment provided for the seed and its germination and many other similar lessons a child who makes a garden and thus becomes intimate with the plants he cultivates and comes to understand the interrelation of the various forms of life which he finds in his garden has progressed far in the fundamental knowledge of nature's ways as well as in the practical knowledge of agriculture end of section four recording by jill ingle